Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, we are back. Happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from the Focus Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. As always, we hope it's going fantastic for everybody else and you're having a great week so far. So today we are going to be going over and chatting with a friend of ours and someone that you've talked to for a while and his yeah. name is Clayton Young. He is at Kengyo Investing on Twitter. That's K-E-N-K-Y-O Investing. And his website is www.kenkyoinvesting.com. And we're going to chat a lot about that, but he has a pretty unique story. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting for a lot of people uh, to hear. So before we talk about his investing, what he's currently doing, we're going to just get a little bit of a backstory on him. You know how I love stories and how everyone's story is you know, completely different. The narrative is always being written. And I think Clayton is actually a pretty good example of that because he is... Um, you know, doing something that he, where he's currently at, which we're going to chat about. So, Clayton, how are you doing here today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We are doing great. Thanks so much for coming on. You are in the Philippines, right? That is correct. Yeah, I'm so in it's in the middle of nowhere, Philippines. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. So it is seven ten p.m. here in the yeah. great state of Texas in Dallas. So what time is it there? It's eight ten in the morning. Yeah. So good morning. Good morning. Cool, man. Well, as I was saying, you know, we um, like I said. We always sort of, I guess, sort of talk about people's stories and how they got into investing. But before I think we hit on the investing part and sort of what um, drew you to it, I'm really curious to hear about your story. And if I am correct, you spent your childhood in Japan and you came to the United States for college. Um, so you really only were here for a couple of years or whatever. So I'm really curious sort of how that came about and about your childhood in Japan. And maybe you could just sort of hit on that and uh, give us a little backstory on you. Yeah, so it might get a little long, but my mother is Japanese and my father is American. And uh, they got split when I was two years old or something. That must have been like a troublesome baby. But uh, my mother took me back to Japan, uh, remarried. I grew up in Japan, lived a pretty typical Japanese life. And uh, she was actually an English teacher. So the reason I speak English now is because she would ignore me if I spoke to her in Japanese. And I went and learned Japanese just like all the Japanese kids do, went to school. Um, so... Right around when I was 17, uh, it's probably the one and only biggest big argument I've ever had with my mother was the college argument because she wanted me to stay in Japan and I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere by staying in Japan. So we fought, I won, I moved to the US and uh, started going to college, then went to grad school, worked for a few years and then my work sent me to the Philippines, so I'm here now. Yeah, that that's that's definitely pretty interesting. So, what um, what made you want to come to the United States? Was it because you already spoke the language, or what sort of drew you here? Well, 
part of it was that my mother, the program my mother wanted me to join was uh, an English program at a Japanese university, which um, I think you could probably guess doesn't really get you very far in terms of uh, English language skills. And uh, I, I didn't feel like it was going to be a meaningful four years. And at the time, I was reading personal finance books and and the U.S. was this, you know, the place to be to learn this stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of, I decided I wanted to go to the U.S., move to Texas. Yeah, well, and how was that transition from Japan to coming to Texas where it's 110 degrees in the summertime? Well, actually, the weather wasn't too bad, but for about a whole year, I thought nothing other than wanting to go home. <laughs> so... After that was uh, much more interesting, kind of getting more immersed and uh, acquainted with American culture. Yeah, no, that that's definitely pretty interesting. So you came to Dallas, and then from Dallas, you went to the Philippines. How long have you been in the Philippines for? I've been here I'm going on three years in January. And what brought you there? All right, so after graduate school, I... Well, I, I was working in the corporate world in the U.S., uh, was going to grad school. After I graduated, I kind of figured out it's not really for me. And I decided to jump into a small business uh, as a project manager in a construction company, uh, which my mentor owns. And he sold off the company, uh, kept me, and we weren't quite sure what where my place was going to be because he sold the company. But uh, turns out he is a partial owner in a seafood company out in the Philippines that was also struggling to talk to a Japanese customer. So he just told me, if you're interested in the Philippines, uh, visit there. It's right you know, across the pond from where your folks are. Uh, just stop by, see if you like it. If you don't, no worries. Uh, company paid vacation, and if you do, stay there and help out. And so I just jumped here and stayed here. No, that's 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 pretty funny. Like I said, how you know stories can completely something can happen, and you are now on a completely different path. He sold his company, and he needed help in the Philippines, and now you're living there. It's kind of funny how that works out. Yeah. So what, yeah, I was just curious. So how then did you get into investing? Did you major in finance in college or I'm always sort of curious to hear about how the bug bit them? Well, I do have an MBA, but Samir Patel, which you interviewed uh, several weeks ago, he's, he actually kind of introduced me to value investing while we were in college. So this is like maybe 2012. And from I, the, I went to school with him. Yeah. Oh, nice. And then from there, did you just uh, were you always because like Samir? I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he he started as a day trader, and then he made that transition over to being, I guess, like the typical value investor or or whatever you want to think about it as as stocks being fractional ownerships of real businesses. Did you always start, I guess, with that sort of mindset, or was your path a little bit different, or how'd that work? I've never really traded stocks, and actually, I had the the Intelligent Investor book, um, when I was 19, I'd read it, didn't understand it. It just sat in my 
closet for, I don't know, uh, maybe five years before I read it again. And it kind of, you know, I, I understood it more because I, I guess, took more business classes at that point. Yeah, more familiar with accounting and stuff. Yeah, I think it's a book that you almost have to force yourself to read because everybody's written it or read it before, and everyone, I guess, references yeah. it. But it's kind of like boring. <laughs> I'll come out and <laughs> say it. Right, yeah. yeah, no, that that's great. So, um, so Samir got you interested in investing, and then you read the Intelligent Investor, and I'm guessing from there you were sort of hooked. And did you start blogging from there, or how did you did you start investing your own capital, or how did that work out? Well, so Samir got his start writing articles for websites, and he kind of introduced me to that part of it too. And so that I started, I think I wrote my first article in 2014, towards the end of that year. And uh, I'd occasionally post. I was still in grad school. And uh, eventually, once I got to the Philippines, and I never even looked at the Japanese stock market until like I got to the Philippines. And once I got here, I figured, you know, I was going to make this my full-time job so it's like what you know we're always looking for what edge do we have informational or analytical or what sort of edge do we have and I looked at my toolbox and figured out hey nobody's really looking at Japan with you know and value investing isn't very common there so I just figured like taking kind of the American value approach into the Japanese stock market, small caps would be, um, should yield something interesting at the very least. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you're able to, I guess, use your, your background of being able to speak Japanese and understand and read it and stuff. And then also English as well, because like you said, it's probably a more inefficient market, I would imagine. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Yeah, so Kenco Investing, that is your new website, correct? That you haven't launched that yet or that you did launch recently? The website's been up for about two years. It started as a blog. Okay. And then uh, I did my newsletter for the first time uh, around this time last year. And now I'm fixing to launch a, a weekly coverage on... Uh, Japanese deep value and magic formula stocks each week. And so that should be up probably when this podcast airs. <laughs> yeah, and I'm curious about that. So I'm looking, I have a screenshot of uh, something from your site. Um, on the website, there's a short list of value-focused Japanese stocks. 48 Kenko Magic Formula Reports, two linear company highlights, and 48 Kenko Deep Value Reports. So is that more so your style is deep value then? And um, and do you, you use Joel Greenblatt's Magic Formula, or what's that all about? So it's actually not much my style. I uh, originally started off looking at uh, deep value stocks because I read The Intelligent Investor, but currently what I... Want to, what I usually focus on is more the qualitative basket aspect of uh, companies because because I speak Japanese and I feel that you know net nets and probably even Greenblatt uh, magic formula stocks they're you know you start with a screen and then go from there and 
you know, oftentimes it's easy to kind of miss quali uh, high quality companies. That's something you have a real difficult time finding if you don't speak Japanese. So, you, so my newsletter is generally focused on um, high quality companies. And uh, when I write about deep value and magic formula stocks, I start with the screen and then pick one, write about it. And when I write my newsletter, I, it's just boatloads of reading and eventually I come across an interesting company. Yeah, and I guess if I want, I should add a little context for all the people listening. So I took this from your website. It says, value investing meets Japanese equities. All write-ups are researched in Japanese, analyzed with a value angle, and published in English. So you're doing all research on, on Japanese um, companies, and then you are writing them up in English, um, I guess for yes. probably people like in not in Japan and that can't speak the, the language for them to, I guess... Um, sort of, I guess, read about. That's exactly correct. Interesting. So what is your, so you were just talking before how you um, start with a screen. Um, so what kind of screen do you use? Oh, your typical uh, net net screen or NCAV screen and uh, green, uh, magic formula screen. So have you found that you like high EBIT then and high return on capital or high earnings yield and high return on capital? Have you found that to be... Um, cause you know, it's, it's interesting cause I feel like since, I mean, do you like that screen, Jeff? Uh, no, I don't really like it. Yeah. I thought you talked about that. You didn't like it. Why don't you like it? Uh, because the kind, it turns up a lot of like busted growth stocks, things like yeah. that, controversial stocks. Yeah. I wonder if it's more efficient though, or inefficient, I guess you could say in, in Japan. Yeah. Well, I think you have to learn about the quality issues of the company. Yeah. Yeah. So you just pretty much use it as like a place to start clean. Yeah. And, um, that's more to, I, I know that a lot of people look at the net net stocks and the green or magic formula stocks and it's more of a half of it's yes, finding investment opportunities and the other half of it is avoiding train wrecks. So that's kind of why I cover those two. Sure. Yeah, that's great. So how do you typically structure your portfolio then? Like, are you agnostic towards um, the types of size that you look for? I know you had said small caps. Does that mean that you won't go off in, I guess, a larger cap space or mid cap space? Do you focus on spinoffs? Maybe you could sort of hit on your actual investing process. I'm a little more uh, agnostic. I don't really care what the market cap's at, um, as long as I have confidence that the business will uh, perform well over time so that, that's the market cap isn't really an issue um, but my research tends to uh, for the last year or so has tended to go a little bit over the hundred million uh, US dollar mark more because I have a couple of institutional clients who you know need that liquidity so they need that generally a little bit larger they don't yeah. want to go too small. But uh, in terms of my portfolio, I think probably two companies are below 100 million and I only own three. So you you in your whole portfolio, you only own three stocks? Yes. Wow, so that's that's pretty concentrated. Is that 100% fully invested or do you have some cash? I have some cash. It's maybe on my Japan portfolio like 60%, 70% invested. Wow. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. Then. Yeah. So what types of companies, you don't need to give the exact name if you don't want, but maybe you could just 
give us an idea of the types of businesses that you look for, especially with employing that sort of concentration. I mean, even by Jeff and my standard, that's that's pretty concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like, <laughs> you know, for us, we have certain guidelines of companies that we look for and probably more importantly, things that we look to avoid because we are so concentrated. So I'm curious if you have yeah. some sort of rule set or or guidelines or something along those lines that you follow because you are so concentrated. It's all heuristics, and I'm not like I'm not holding three companies just to be super concentrated. I'd probably uh, buy others too if I feel like I'm. I'm really tempted to buy more in one of the three companies I own, but um, so right now, what my main holding is. Uh, I'll just reserve the name, but it's a company that uh, does EDI software, the electronic data interchange software in Japan. And it's it's a tiny little company, but they have something like almost 40% share in uh, that specific software uh, category. And uh, they have a huge cash position but uh, the CEO is also looking into moving in to other uh, data-related services, software services. So it's kind of one of those situations where it um, doesn't cost a whole lot to uh, grow the business. Sure. And is that like a low, I'm guessing like, a, do you look for companies that are kind of like low capital expenditures, high free cash flow generative businesses? Is that the type of company that that is like a lot of other software companies? Uh, yeah, it's, it's like that. And um, the other thing about it is, you know, kind of like in with ERP systems, when a company is talking about implementing ERP systems, you know, the first company you have in mind is SAP or Oracle. And so once once a company is established enough and has enough market share in a specific area, I, I think that uh, you can establish your mini SAP or Oracle status to where when a company is talking about needing EDI software or middleware, the first name that pops up is either this company I'm invested in or they're one other competitor. It's, it's uh, two companies own like seventy percent share in the market, so I feel like that's kind of a big benefit for them too. Sure, uh, that's great. So, what's your your research process like? I'm always also kind of curious to hear about that. Um, for example, like, do you start with a 10k, or how's your sort of process? I guess with that. So to start from uh, idea generation, I have two approaches. One is recent. Um, it's the deep value and the magic formula screener. I, I never really used screener until I started uh, doing um, weekly write-ups for my new service. But that's uh, that's one way. Just pick up stocks over the screener, then you know, start with the numbers, then go into quality. But the other uh, process I'm more used to is just doing a whole boatload of reading, whether it's uh, investment blogs in Japanese or the Nikkei, uh, Toyo Keizai, which is another newspaper, Diamond JP is another business-oriented uh, website. So I, I do a lot of reading, and 
eventually I come across a company that sounds interesting, then I'll start reading more about it. And then uh, first thing I'll do is download the last several years of uh, the Japanese equivalent of a 10K. It's called a Yuho. Uh, and then I'll look at every uh, last few years of uh, their earnings presentations. Then I'll uh, Google search like any interviews that the company took on in the past and like what any other news articles or other people's analysis online uh, in Japanese, of course. And then that's about, that's probably like, yeah, most of my <laughs> research is done that way. And then, so you, you typically write up, what's, what kind of research do you do after you buy the company? After what? Like, how do you take, like, after you purchase the company, do you revisit it, I guess, every quarter or revaluate every quarter? What's your process like with that? No, I don't, I don't really do quarter to quarter stuff. Like, um, I probably won't even check the stock price for six months. It's just, um, I'll come back to it maybe once a year. Just kind of, yeah. Whenever I see the update presentation for the full year, that's when I'll kind of take another look. Yeah, no, that that's pretty good. So Jeff and I, obviously, we when we value companies, we think about what they will look like five years into the future. Mm-hmm. What's your process on that? And how long do you typically look to hold a company for? Well, I don't... I really don't want to sell, <laughs> so... When I buy something, I, I guess I just, I tend to think of it as uh, being very lazy. So, like, I want to be able to buy this company and just hold it until indefinitely so I won't have to find another idea. So that's kind of why I, you know, I, I really, that, that's a source for hesitation to purchase companies too. But uh, I feel like when I do buy one, it's just, I'm generally super confident in it. But usually I think I look more on a shorter term, more what's two years ahead, what's three years ahead for the company rather than five. But yeah, generally pretty similar. So I know on your website you had a couple times um, where you had someone writing up that they visited Japanese companies, visited Japan, and they were a uh, investment manager from outside Japan. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah, so uh, in June, I made my first uh, visit to Tokyo with a client and um, had management meetings and such for the first time. So I feel like what I get from those visits is one that you don't really get a whole lot on the first visit, I don't think. And another one of my clients is telling me kind of something similar too. He was trying to get one of his uh, companies on the phone and trying to get some, ask them some questions and they wouldn't answer nothing until you're in the same room with them, uh, taking the time to meet. And a lot of times uh, I feel like their guard is up for the first 20, 30 minutes. And once you, once they figure out that the, uh, you've done your research and like you actually 
know something about the company, then they're more open to talking about uh, their business. And that's not like in every case, there's more open, there are people who are more, way more open from the start. There are companies that are just releasing very little information and management meetings and such. So it's, it's, you get a mixed bag. Were you the, the translator? Did your client speak Japanese? Uh, no, I, I was the translator for the first trip and I did two trips in the last few months and we had a translator for the second. So what would your biggest advice be for uh, investors outside Japan who've never invested in Japan? What kind of differences they should expect or um, what they should know before investing in Japan? I think a lot of it also depends on your investment style. So one thing, I, I interviewed uh, Brian Grosso, which is the first client I went to Japan with. And uh, one of the things, he, he's generally more... Uh, you know, devalue oriented, and what he was telling me too was that uh, originally, when he's investing in these stocks, you look at the uh, you know, mean reversion to happen in you know, three years or so. But in Japan, you kind of need to be very patient, and felt like five to eight years was uh, a more appropriate time frame to give yourself when you're doing deep value. And on the other hand, the other investor I went with is a lot more uh, quality and growth oriented. And uh, she's, you know, growth is kind of its own marketing material. So I think once a company starts growing, you, you know, people eventually know about it. And uh, it's all over every business paper. And, um, yeah, so what he wants to do is like figure out how the growth is going to happen. And like one company he's invested in, which I won't give the name of, but they've, you know, they sell, uh, how should I say? They sell products, of course, but they manage to basically reduce their uh, raw materials and have an increase uh, per piece revenue for the product they sell and it seemed like that wasn't reflected in the market yet and you know it definitely wasn't on the financials yet and they just got done building a production facility for this the new product they're selling and so the the price looks like high teen EV bit, but you know, with your input being lower and your revenue per piece being higher, uh, his his investment case is that their operating income is going to grow uh, quite a bit to make that uh, multiple lower. I'm assuming market cap stays the same. How do companies in Japan, I guess, um, and managements in Japan view capital allocation? Are they pretty good? Do you think about buying back their stock or paying dividends? What are your sort of thoughts on that? I think uh, I don't feel like a lot of uh, managers pay much attention to that. Like lately, they with the corporate governance reform and stuff, ROE, people pay more attention to ROE now. But uh, 
I really don't think, I think people are starting to pay more attention now to like buybacks and paying out dividends, you know, offloading cash that they're never going to use. And, but generally speaking, I, like compared to the U.S., I, I don't think Japanese managers pay as much attention to it. Uh, our listeners probably don't pay enough attention about Japan to know what you're talking about with the corporate governance reforms. Can you talk us a little bit to us about that? Okay, well, so Japan's kind of had the, I think is known for bad corporate government uh, governance for a long time, like uh, T. Boone Pickens is an example from, I want to say the 80s, late 80s where uh, he purchased, I think, like a quarter of a auto parts supplier that was uh, part of the Toyota family, and he couldn't even get a board seat, but, you know, Toyota had, le- had, Toyota had uh, less ownership stake in the same company, but had three board seats while T. Boone Pickens could get none, and that's kind of, like, very descriptive of uh, Japan, uh, what do you say, governance or allergies to foreigners or whatever. But, and that's been seen as a problem. And now, you know, what the prime, the prime minister now is kind of pushing for better governance. So it's kind of shifting from main banks and the government used to keep the businesses in check, but now that businesses are have a lot of cash, you know, the banks aren't, they're not really borrowing money, they don't really have to like suck up to banks, so they're doing their own thing, and now it's kind of shifting more towards, okay, shareholders do have power, whereas, you know, two decades ago, it was like, oh, you own shares? Uh, corporate ownership's more of a, you know, collective stakeholder thing where uh, your customer has a say, your supplier has a say, shareholders have a say, and uh, your employees have a say. So I think it's, it stems to, uh, I think it stems to corporate ownership in Japan. It's viewed very differently than in the U.S. where, you know, it's like shareholders are the owners of a company. In Japan, it's it's a little different. It's um, employees own the company, shareholders own the company, customers own the company, suppliers own the company. Like everybody has a say in it. And I think especially employees. So I think the governance is changing a little bit because uh, employees had a lot of say for a long time and they still do. But people are starting to pay attention to what shareholders have to say. Have to say. So, for the corporate ownership part that you just sort of talked about, are the companies more controlled then? I mean, and is there any activism that takes place in Japan? Active investing hasn't really uh, performed well in Japan. I I haven't really read any um, news where like a foreign active investor came in and like something ended well. If I had to name one, it might be like Fanuc, but you know, they started paying dividends and stuff. But no, generally, like 
Japanese don't like uh, foreigners coming in and telling them what to do. Yeah, I had read some things about um, people suggesting that when they do any sort of activism in Japan that they avoid uh, talking about it publicly, that they prefer talking to management privately about it. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think is that? Just because of the culture change or? Well, the kind of letters, I I I think. think, Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a main cultural, mainly a cultural thing. Like, if you, I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but like, confrontation is just not the way to like no nobody it doesn't end well in japan you won't you won't see it everybody you have a whole population of people trying to avoid it i'm kind of like that too you know growing up there i don't really do confrontation i had a real struggle dealing with uh, the the very direct american tone until i was gonna say it's gotta be a lot different this this is just an american way of talking yeah sure um so what kind of strategies do you think could work well in japan i mean i guess the two obvious ones for the people listening to this podcast are the sort of ben graham type approach and the sort of phil fisher type approach right so how would someone go about trying to do either of those things in japan like what would their process be i think uh, for deep value investors, your your main uh, it's not really a process, but like adjusting your expectations on like how long you your uh, investment's gonna play out. So you know, kind of like what I said earlier, uh, if you're looking at a deep value stock and you're saying, okay, I'll give this stock three years, see where it goes. Just you know, forget about that. Say, expect eight years. Yeah, for mean reversion or whatever. And for more quality-oriented people, um, that's a tough call. It's, I don't know how, like, I have a hard time imagining being a foreign foreign investor looking for high-quality stocks and looking at Japan and finding ideas. And that's because for every one piece of article, useful article that you find in English, there's about 20 in Japanese that you don't have access to. So, I guess I, I don't know on the high quality stuff. Well, they could use a service a like yours. Investor. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Uh, promotion, yeah. Subscribe to my service. There you go. Have you ever thought about writing for Japanese clients, U.S. companies, and then translating it to Japanese? Uh well, I feel like I'm a much better. I, I prefer reading in Japanese and writing in English. And really? I think part of it's that the in you know I spent college and grad school in the U.S. and I, I was actually living there for about nine years. And by the end of it, I I felt like my language fluency, in terms of writing at least, you know, having spent um, nearly a decade immersed in English. I'm actually much more comfortable writing in English. I've, you know, started off writing for Seeking Alpha, and every piece of published articles I have are in English. So I'm I'm I've actually tried writing one Japanese article for not for publishing, but for a. Uh, Friend of mine to see that there are a couple guys that own a website called Buffett Code in Japan, 
And every time I go to Tokyo, I meet up with them for coffee or beer. And, you know, what they do is um, they build a database with uh, uh, financials for Japanese listed companies, which, yes, you can find that on Morningstar, Bloomberg, or whatnot, but like a lot of times you can find like segment data in, uh, in Japanese filings, but you won't really find that in the big institution, uh, institutional services. So what they do is kind of, it's more retail oriented, but they build a website that makes uh, Japanese stock data way more accessible and it's free. It's only available in Japanese, but, uh, I've been trying to push them to start doing content stuff because it would be more interesting. And I just gave them an example article. And that's about it. So do you think there are many value investors in Japan? And are there many long-term investors in Japan? I think it's starting to grow. Um, even just two years ago, like when you look up value investing in on Japanese internet, like you, you might find a couple bloggers and they're like, and definitely deep value. They've read uh, Intelligent Investor in the translated version, but they don't really know about, you know, Howard Marks or Marty Whitman or like, you know, some of the, you know, there are plenty of great investors that have a lot of published materials, but the, the only real one that uh, I, I feel that the Japanese value investors have known or read about is uh, ben Grant. And then uh, what, so, do you, what do you think about time frame of investment? I actually came across um, what was it, a research paper or something by Misaki Investments about a year ago that noted that something like 70% of Japanese investors hold their positions for less than a year. So... I would say pretty short-term oriented. I'll have to go back and look for that and send you the link or something. But yeah, yeah. So my experience investing in Japanese net nets, and I think some uh, other um, people shared the same thing with me, is uh, that a lot of Americans who invest in Japanese net nets were surprised when the stocks got some momentum behind them, just how far up they mm -hmm. went after for so long um, being mm -hmm. dead. Uh, so I wonder, do you think momentum investing is something you see in Japan? I guess so. Yeah. I don't really, I actually don't really pay too close attention to prices, um, like day to day changes and stuff. So I wouldn't really be the guy to ask, but I can see how that would fit in culturally. Yeah. I mean, what, in terms of like retail investors, what do you think is the, um, differences between American and Japanese retail investors? Well, I think for one, there aren't, I, I haven't met too many. I got a couple of high school friends who's like, yeah, I guess I invest sometimes, but I mostly leave it to like whatever mutual fund they have. My my friends that I've talked to, you know, there's just a couple of or not college high school friends. They the very like surface level retail. They I don't think they've ever picked up a investment book in their life, but it's just kind of like very cut and dry. Do you think the stock will go up? And I don't think. Most people really look at it as, hey, it's a one shares, you know, partial ownership in a company. So, like, 
look at the financials and you know, for share earnings or whatever. Like, I don't think people really connect the dots that way. It's just like, I have stock and does it go up? Does it go down? Sure. Do you think that's sort of the like general? Do you think that's sort of the general consensus in Japan? The short answer is I have no idea. <laughs> but that's just a couple of my friends who are like, hey, I bought shares in you know this bank because uh, whatever, and I don't know if it's going to go up or down. Like, then why'd you buy it? Sure. No, that's great. So one of the closing questions that I always like to ask guests that come on the show is what are some ways you think individuals listening can improve as investors? I'd just say read, 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 and then get your hands dirty. Yeah, so I, I would agree with that. We've talked about before how, and Jeff's talked about that a lot too, and even I fell into that, and I think a lot of people can relate to it. At some point in the evolution of learning about investing, you kind of gobble up probably every financial book you can. And really... We, I think once you have a set of fundamentals down and how to think about investing, I guess, and how to think about valuing companies from there, the only way to improve is to just read a bunch of 10 Ks and learn about a bunch of different businesses. So I, I would completely agree with that. And uh, my rule of thumb is whenever you make a mistake, just call it tuition. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I, I completely agree with that. <laughs> Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what thing you're launching in the next month or so on your site? Uh, yeah, so it's I'm launching a Kankyo Deep Value and Magic Formula stock coverage. So what it basically is, is what I'm trying to build is a tool to help investors uh, better understand Japanese companies. And what I offer is a net, net screen and a... a magic formula screen and so I think a common problem for investors looking into Japan is that most often you have no idea what the company actually does especially the smaller the company gets so in these screens I have you know I have listed your NCAV, your price to NCAV and you know your earnings yield and whatnot for uh, magic formula stocks but I also added a you know, a couple two-line blurbs about what the company does. And each week I'll cover uh, one company, from Deep Value Company, one Magic Formula Company, and write up about them. And uh, eventually I'll have a much bigger comprehensive database on uh, Japanese companies where you can uh, look at the screen, know a little bit about the company. If it takes your interest, then you read my report and... The reports are maybe 1,000, 1,500 words long, and it'll give you a good idea of what the company actually does. So, yeah, that's what I'm offering now. And so where can people sign up for that? On my website, thankyouinvesting.com. And I actually uh, made a coupon code for the Focus Compounding podcast listeners and that's fc podcast would be the code i'll send it to you guys a little bit later all right we'll put that in the show notes. yeah and maybe if you could include or email over what we can do is also include a report maybe i could tweet out a report or include a report in the show notes so people could just see a sample 
of it and see if that's yeah. something that they would be interested in. Cool. Well, yeah, if anyone out there is interested in in Japan, um, I guess as a country to invest in Japan stocks, he's definitely a good resource to um, you know look for ideas and learn about it. Um, like we sort of talked about, he you know translates it and and writes about it in English, and Japan probably has a lot of inefficiencies. I would say, yeah, it's the best information on small Japanese stocks I've read in English. So there you go, yeah. and that says a lot coming from Jeff. So if you want to um, check that out, I'm going to put the link to his website and his Twitter also in the show notes, and then I'll see if we could also include a sample report for people to um, to be able to read. But so Clayton, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It was definitely interesting to learn a little bit about Japan. Like I said, I think it's a market that. I never ever hear people talk about other than maybe Jeff when he talks about the net net situation in Japan. So I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thanks, Andrew and Jeff. I appreciate you inviting me. Definitely. We'll 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 bring you back on to talk um more like about companies in the future. So that'll be fun. So thank you everyone for listening. Um we uh have more guests coming on in the future. Um this was a lot of fun. Um if you do want to help us out with the podcast, feel free to give us a rating and review and subscribe to the iTunes. Uh, that helps grow the podcast and Jeff and I would be greatly appreciative of that. Other than that, Jeff, do you have any Final um, closing remarks. You can read my blog again on investing, and you can follow Andrew at on Twitter on at Focus Compound. At Focus Compound. You got it. Alrighty. Other than that, we hope everybody has a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com where you can read stock ideas written by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscombating.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.